The Start On Demand. On demand. One Impact's hospitals are seeing a spike in code whites. That's the code for violence and aggression. Is this just a blip, or do we have a serious problem that can no longer be ignored? Flood season is upon us. We'll talk about the projections and find out how an RM just south of Winnipeg is preparing itself along Highway 75. We'll tell you about a basketball team with 37 players. And if you had to be stranded on an island, which friend from Sesame Street would you want to have with you? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, March 19th podcast for The Start. how Manitoba could be hit with a kind of flooding it has not seen in 10 years. You wouldn't dare walk through that. You'd get swept away. What is that sound effect from? <laughs> it sounded, it sounds like a wind tunnel, but that was the sound of flood waters rushing over roads near St. Adolphe in 2009. And in the pictures, it was very much a rapid-like effect. You really wouldn't have put your car across that road, let alone tried to wade into it. And we're talking about 2009 because that's where Manitoba is heading. As it stands right now, the forecast suggests the Red River, if things go well, would rise to about 2011 levels. If we get any more snow or rain, we're going to be hit with levels worse than they were in the spring of 2009. If you're wondering what that's like, well, Jay During is a civil engineer and flood expert with the U of M. Here's what that kind of water could bring. 2009 brought us uh, not a lot of fun. I think uh, in of particular note is the fact that Highway 75 was underwater for in excess of a month. I think if you comb back through the newscast, you'll find that there were a couple of hundred people uh, that essentially got out of the Red River Valley. Uh, some ring dikes were fully closed and some ring dikes were partially closed. So we we start to get into those awkward water levels, you know, where essentially the only way we're coming and going from towns is by, by a boat or from houses. I would uh, urge people to, to stay calm. We have to remember that Following the 1997 flood, there were a lot of changes to our infrastructure. We have a Red River floodway that was significantly enhanced to handle a 1997 flood. Uh, I dare say with with, with ease, although I hope those words never come back to haunt me. Uh, There used to be eight ring dikes in the valley. There's now 16 ring dikes. And all of the homes uh, that were flooded or that came close to flooding have all been raised to a 1997 plus two feet. Uh, elevation, so the you know the property itself remains uh, remains safe, remains high and dry, uh, but we can't discount the significant inconvenience that this obviously causes uh, to residents of the Red River Valley when uh, they're you know they're essentially cut off because ring dikes are closed or their home essentially becomes an island in the in the middle of a very flat piece of land. Uh, it takes a while for that land to to dry out eventually in order for them to be able to get crops in. So um, it's it, you know it's the inconvenience and the economic impact, but it's it's not a state of panic. 
2011, that was the year. The Cinnaboyne. The Cinnaboyne flood, the cut at the Hoop and Holler Dam, and of course, all the damage on Lake Manitoba to residents, to cottages, the inland flooding uh, just east of Lake Manitoba. There's the- people still out in First Nations communities north of here from that flood, and then homes still being rebuilt eight years later. So right. the, the economic impact is just, even when it's a, and I'm using air quotes here, a minor or event can be. Devastating. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, the graphs here of the worst flooding in Manitoba's history. And of course, 1826 and 1852, uh, before the construction of Duff's Dish, Ditch. And then we get into 1997, 2009, 1861, and then 1950, 79, 96, 06, 1974, and 2011. In oh. order. We start this hour with flood concerns, and we want to head now to the RM of Richot. And joining us live on 680 CJOB is the mayor, Chris Reed, or Chris Ewan, pardon me, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mayor Ewan, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. No problem. Thanks for having me on today. So when you hear that they're talking about a flood level like 2009, which was one of, you know, top five floods in Manitoba history, what goes through your head? Take us back to 2009. What did that do to towns like St. Adolph or other? Uh, yeah, so for 2009 for Richaw, we were looking at uh, just diking in the uh, St. Adolph community. We still had access in and out to St. Adolph. Um, 75 was uh, closed off, but it didn't uh, affect the St. Agathe's town in Richot. So we're just focusing on uh, making sure we're prepared, just like we were in 2009, uh, making sure we have enough sandbags. We ordered 300,000 sandbags um, that year, and this year we're going to order 400,000 just so we're, uh, we're ready for it. At what point do you spring into action with this, Chris? You're obviously uh, in preparation mode, but what will be the trigger for you to start sandbagging and, and to start sandbagging in certain locations? Uh, I think you nailed it right on the head. Like We are already in preparation mode. Our emergency measures uh, organizer is is already uh, getting ready for the season. Uh, our, when our phones are open uh, Monday for the residents and uh, businesses to start calling in to, to ask the preparation questions. Um, and then it's, it's really up to our EMO, our emergency measures organizer, to, uh, to kind of uh, dictate and follow, uh, follow the storm, uh, follow for those of us who might not be familiar with these communities or haven't perhaps lived through a flood like this, I know in Winnipeg we're very familiar with flooding, but since 97 we have all these mitigation things in place that really limit the impact within the city limits. But you go outside, you can see dikes around homes. You mentioned those temporary dikes that go up. I mean, how much earth and, and dirt has to be moved in to close those dikes around your towns to make sure the water doesn't get in? Uh, you know, we're pretty fortunate. Uh, after 2009, the province uh, started to uh, work on the outside communities and build huge uh, uh, ring dike expansions throughout uh, a lot of communities, not just uh, our, our Synodal, for example. But uh, there was a lot of earth moving, absolutely. I couldn't give you the tonnage, but uh, I know that a lot of work has been done. So it's it's very um, little work that needs to proceed when we start getting ready for the flood because they've already taken the time and preparations before. Um, so yeah, we a lot of work, but luckily a lot of it's been done already, uh, preparing for uh, you know the future. 
Now, I know it's a provincial responsibility, but I want to ask you about Highway 75 and if you can help us at all understand what has been done over the years with regard to Highway 75. It's obviously a major transportation artery, but is it also part of the flood fighting system in your part of the province, Chris? Um, you know what, that, for for us, uh, did we just lose area? Um, it, it's definitely a, a major uh, part or artery from the Red River because it, it's just right off the Red River. Um, but it's a necessary thing that we have to close out to make sure that uh, you know business and uh, life can survive uh, inside the uh, the flood area. So it's it's something that we're used to seeing closed down, and uh, we just go about it uh, safely, and uh, we prepare for what uh, what we need to do. What gets spent? What goes into a budget for a municipality like yours just south of the city in terms of flood prep? How much are we spending when you hear a number like 2009 and you mentioned you're putting out more sandbags? What's the cost? Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one. It, it really depends on uh, what we're looking uh, for with uh, the DFA. Um, but we can we can estimate, you know, it starts around that 40,000 mark and can go, can go up. All right, Chris Ewan joining us live on 680 CJOB, the mayor of Richot. And uh, in case anybody wants to to pitch in and, and help out and volunteer, how do they how do they do that? How do they get involved and make sure that they're on standby? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. So you can always uh, you can always email me, and I'm always available. But uh, the best thing to do is uh, call our office two zero four eight eight three two two nine three, and then we'll also have our uh, our emergency preparedness line open as of Monday next week. So we're getting ready and we're hoping that a lot of volunteers come out and uh, pitch in. All right. Chris Ewan, the mayor of Richot, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Mayor, as we get ready for flood season. The headline at CJOB.com that we could see levels that we haven't seen since 2009 in Manitoba and uh as we were looking at the long-term forecast, it's above zero every day. The next two weeks, we have some. We still drop back into the minus mm. overnight in many cases. But I'm seeing as high as 11 degrees in the long-term forecast. Which that could, could change. push that quick melt. They're talking about 2009 being that scenario that you can picture, where you have all that overland flooding. But then in places like Saint Adolphe and Morris, all around those towns that have those dikes, people are using boats. Like it becomes pretty normal to have a boat or a canoe on the ready to sort of right. get in and out of your property and those kinds of things. It's normal, but it doesn't mean you don't stress. I was uh, considering taking a drive north today after we get out of here and, and checking out to see what the ice jam situation is up north of the city, up north of Lockport, heading towards Selkirk and Netley Marsh. Uh, if you're up in that part of the province, maybe you can uh, snap us a picture, send it to us, 780-6868, or text us a, a report on this. We, we'd love to hear how things are making out as we are warming up, and that sun is so warm, regardless of the temperature, it's got to be helping out, and hopefully it's melting things nice and slow. Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Jeff Fortier, we're all here. Yesterday, Sesame Street put out on social media, you're stuck on a deserted island, and you can pick one of these Sesame Street friends to come with you. Who are you picking and why? And the four they've chosen are Oscar the Grouch, Grover, Elmo, or Cookie Monster. So we wanted to have this conversation. Jeff Braun and I, who would you take? Cookie Monster and a landslide. 
Cookie Monster in a landslide. Oscar's too grouchy, Grover's too stupid, and Elmo's about the most obnoxious <laughs> thing ever invented. So you got to go with Cookie Monster by default. Plus, I figure if anyone's going to have food, it's him. Me want cookie. <laughs> well, and here's the thing I was wondering about the Cookie Monster. If you bring him to a deserted island, A, would he eat everything? Yes. Or B... Because he loves cookies, would he only eat cookies? And if there are no cookies to eat, would he just simply die of starvation and you have to take care of him? Well, you're not complaining if he brings cookies and that's the only thing to eat because you're eating at least. But if you're going to have to fight him for the cookies. But if he eats them all and doesn't share, then you got a problem. He's, he's messy. He's a share. He has a problem. He has an addiction. He's a sharer. He's a sharer. Did you say he's messy, Kelly? Are you concerned about crumbs in bed or what? <laughs> no. What, let me finish. I was just going to say you could live off the crumbs. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's true. He does eat anything that looks like a cookie. It's exactly. not exclusive to yeah. cookies. And he's, and he's a monster, so he will protect you. I'm with Bronner. And from what I've seen, if you explain it to him clearly, he will understand the, the concept of sharing. That happens. It seems to happen to him about once a month. On that show. You'd have to explain to him every single day. We've been through this. Sharing this caring cookie yeah, monster. You could start your own show. Today's day on the deserted island is all about sharing <laughs> and caring. Who are you taking with you, Kelly? Cookie monster. Boy. More cookie monster. Two votes for a cookie monster. Yeah, not did you already close. say that? Did you did you jump right in there and say I that said right I, I, I said I agree with Broner 100%. Oh, okay. yeah, right. I don't, not it, used to you guys agreeing, yeah. so <laughs> forgive me for missing that. Forte, what do you think? I'm taking the grouch. Why are you taking the grouch? <sighs> because I'm a positive guy. It smells like garbage. He's a guy. Well, so what? <laughs> but, but no, you need, you need a mixture of positive and negative. So, you know, I, I, would, take, I would take the grouch. Well, here, let's, uh, I think I've got some Oscar the Grouch queued up here. Listen to this. Everyone on Sesame Street is always talking about love. Yuck. <laughs> but now it's time for me to tell you what Oscar the Grouch loves. The thing that Grouches love best of all. Trash. Oh, I <laughs> love trash. <laughs> all right, that's enough of that. <laughs> there you go. There I always wanted go. to get a tour of what he's got going on in that yeah. can. Yeah. Like, it sounded like a whole underground city. Like, in Montreal, you know how, the, how they have the underground? That's how, what I imagine's going on in Oscars. He's got a direct line to the subway or something. Well, Are you going to be he's putting there. supplies in there, right? That's what I'm yeah. thinking. He's going to have supplies. That's what I think. I think yeah. I'd have to go with him, potentially, just because there has to be other things in it, like a tarp. Some rope. Like he has a, everything. Like a boat. Right underneath get, there. How did he get the garbage can to the deserted island? Though? It well, floats. that guy, that, <laughs> is it Sully or whatever, the guy that carries the can around? Would he just drop Oscar off? How would that work exactly? Lots of people on the internet suggesting that Snuffleupagus would be the best choice because of his overall mass. and like, so just to eat. Yes. <laughs> oh, but is that is cannibalism a part of this island experience? Um, <laughs> are not human, so that's not cannibalism. Yeah, Tim Keep, is saying I would take barbecue. Tim says I would take Big Bird dinner for a month. That's right. So, <laughs> come on, you're actually going to put the bird on like a spit, just slow roast it. He's kind of aggravating well, that bird. Let me. Here's an audio demonstration for to potentially argue for bringing Grover. Here's a clip. This is far. Okay, just a few more seconds. This is near. You see? Oh, okay. I'll do one more for you. Okay. This is...
Okay. Goodbye, yeah, Grover. And here's the thing. So you could say, if he's getting on your nerves, you could say, hey, show me how far that is. <laughs> so the other side and of the island. And he would comply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's an interesting point. See, like when it comes to predators, you know, what's the rule when it comes to a bear? You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the person you're with or the people that you're with. Just mm-hmm. don't be last. Don't be the last one. And I'm one, looking yeah. at the list and I'm thinking I could outrun everyone, maybe except Grover. So I'd take any one of the three, but Elmo just because he's cute. I'm with Jeff on that. Elmo is... Uh, he is aggravating, yeah. but he's very cute. He's, he's very smart. When he's did adorable. Elmo come into existence? Was Elmo... Because I don't remember Elmo no, from when I was a kid. It, well, it certainly Tickle wasn't me, when we were kids. Tickle Me Elmo would have been like 1996, Christmas of 95, 96, so... I would, yeah, I, I want to say early 90s mm-hmm. when okay. it was invented. Okay. Born. Born, sorry. Born. Born on Sesame Street. We have, uh, well, Mick is saying there was a PSA years ago with Cookie Monster eating real food. I have seen the Cookie Monster eat vegetables before, kind of reluctantly, but he, he tried them. Uh, a lot of people suggesting they would take Snuffleupagus. Uh, but again, a lot of people are saying that they're, they're just going with, with the best ones that uh, would, would provide you with sustenance. <laughs> uh, another person saying, I would take Oscar, but then he would gripe as much as me. So that could be a sad, lonely place with the two people being miserable. Lots of people weighing in and saying Grover mm-hmm. because, of course, Grover is also Super Grover. Super Grover, and oh. he could fly everyone to safety. Yeah. Although, is he? Isn't he a sep- Grover's well, safety record is comparable to that of the seven thirty seven Max, Max 8. Eight? He's yeah. not great at flying, so I know he shouldn't better be than Big Bird. Like, what's up with that? This is a flightless yeah. bird, right? What's flightless up with bird. That? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a chicken. He can't fly. He's a chicken. He's a chicken. Oh, but he's like a chicken. He's a chicken. He doesn't fly. Chickens I'm just saying fly. he's like a chickens cannot fly. They can, they can do a little bit. Yeah. Well, they're not like they can't hop you over to the next <laughs> they island. They don't get off the runway. Yeah. yeah. I'm not mm. saying Big Bird is a chicken. I you just, haven't he's said. like a chicken. You haven't said. Yeah. I said. No, was, I said the um, Oscar. Oscar the yeah. Grouch because all this because of all the stuff that's oh, in all his the can. stuff in his can. Was Snuffleupagus right. on our list? No. I don't think he was. No. So yeah, so they're going off the grid. Then the people that are picking yeah. Snuffleupagus. Imagine that people yeah. on Twitter going off the grid. Oh, or, in that case, I'd pick our, Bert and Ernie because I could make a raft out of them. Make <laughs> <laughs> a raft out of Bert and Ernie. Wow, that's that's dark. Would they be face down? Eventually. Oh, my <laughs> word. <laughs> That's terrible. Let us know what you think at 204-780-6868. Getting lots of feedback on this. And you can also email Brett at cjob.com, Mackling at cjob.com, or McNabb at cjob.com. Kevin the Garbage Man says, Guy Smiley and Harvey <laughs> Knee Slapper. I don't remember Harvey, Harvey. Knee Slapper. <laughs> oh, I do. Oh, Greg remembers Harvey Knee Slapper. <laughs> now he's slapping his knee. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us today. And you may have noticed on social media, people posting pictures with yellow band-aids on their hand with various names on them. It's in support of Children's Hospitals. It's Children's Hospitals Week. The hashtag is Children's Hospitals Week, and this is happening across North America. So we're going to visit with the Children's Hospital of Manitoba at 745 to learn more about this campaign. We've got Breakfast with the Bombers coming up at 737, and we're going to find out why we love the Drake. That's all we'll say for right now. Who doesn't love the Drake? I don't know. Drake's coffee cake. Mm, so good. George Costanza. I'm speaking of like a hotel. Drake. Oh, what about then? What about Drake? Mm. Like 
Drake, Drake. Take, take him or leave him. The hotel. What's that again? The Drake Hotel. There's, there's. Well, Toronto had one that has a really excellent restaurant, and then the Drake Hotel used to be in Chicago. I don't know if it's still there. Okay. Oh, Greg, you would know that. The Drake Hotel is actually referenced in Mission Impossible. Yeah. I can't remember if it's still in Chicago or not. Anyway. Anyway. Good references. I digress. You let us know. If you know if the Drake Hotel is still in Chicago, text us, 204-780-6868. And in our next segment, more of something that Jeff Braun related to you in Global News at 7 o'clock, why the New Zealand Prime Minister refuses to use the shooter's name in those mosque shootings from last week. But we start this hour with a troubling trend in Winnipeg's hospitals. Yeah, threats, violence, uh, violent assaults, and meth-induced psychosis are just a handful of issues nurses, staff, and security guards are dealing with at Winnipeg hospitals. But the number of times it happens in a month is skyrocketing. New numbers obtained by Global News through a Freedom of Information request show a shocking rise in the number of code whites called at three hospitals in the city. Brittany Greenslade has more. It's the jarring opening of an MGEU commercial. A code white is called when a person inside a hospital becomes violent or aggressive, and it's happening more often. There's been a spike both in the number of violent incidents and and that the incidents themselves are becoming more threatening. Nurses and security guards are dealing with more violence inside Winnipeg hospitals. Global News obtained numbers that highlight a staggering increase in code whites being called at three different hospitals. This is very troubling, but again, it's it's not news to people working on the front lines. This is what they've been seeing day in, day out. Uh, They're worried, they're concerned. In 2018, code whites quadrupled for a handful of months compared to the previous year, including December at HSC, where code whites jumped from 15 in 2017 to an alarming 58 that same month last year. An individual could bring in a pair of pliers, a knife, there's many different things, but there have been weapons and that's this, we're taking that very seriously. Injuries involving a code white are also on the rise. The WRHA couldn't pinpoint one reason for the increase, but says it's likely a combination. Let's be honest here, like absolutely we want people to be proactive in in calling codes, so that is something we're pushing and we want to continue to, but at the same time, violence is in our our healthcare system. We don't want to put the weight until they're in a situation in which there already is aggression and harm before they call a code white. A security review is currently underway, which the WRHA says could result in more changes. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. So, Loren, the numbers are pretty dramatic, at least at two of the three hospitals that we requested and got numbers for. HSC last January had 35 code whites. This January, 60. Victoria went from 20 code whites in the January of 2018 to 50. So it... uh, two and a half times as many. Um, the, the rates are on the rise. The only place that didn't see a huge spike but still saw them jump was Grace Hospital, which went from 20 in the month of January 2018 to 26. So Still almost 20%. It's 20%. And there seems to be sort of an inference there that people, the more cold whites, not only is the violence on the rise, but people are now being encouraged to call it to not hesitate to call. And so I don't know if the argument is then, well, that's why we're seeing more of them go up because people aren't willing to risk even a half a second because of possible meth psychosis and all the rest, but it's troubling. And she also referenced the um, review that's being done by the province that just was launched this year after months of staff at hospitals across the city complaining about their concerns, not complaining, just trying to sound the alarm. And so we've got to call out to the health minister because 
I, I don't know how long they want to wait before a review is done and then recommendations are made and then it's in place if this is the trend we're seeing. A couple of different conversations we're having this morning with regard to numbers and trends and, and what does it indicate. And quite often when you, when you look at these things, you say, oh, well, have the actual number of of these incidents actually gone up or has the reporting gone up? Has the, re- has the reporting mechanism improved over time? But the WRHA, uh, Crystal Williams, told us that the number of injuries has gone up as well. And that would be probably the be the statistic that I would be more, more interested in is the number of injuries. And those are on the increase, so which tells us this is a higher danger to those that are working in those positions in the hospitals, the frontline staff who interacting with people, good, bad, and otherwise. It's troubling when you go to a hospital, you think of it as a safe place, you're there to see your family or friends who are in need of care. When I was at, I spent a lot of time at Concordia when my mom uh, was sick before she passed, and, and I heard the code white mm-hmm. call a couple of times, and it's unnerving. You know, you're you're trying to focus on your family, but you're worried about what might come running down the hall. You don't know where this is happening in the hospital, and uh, yeah, to know that this is on the rise and that uh, the staff are having to deal with that. While like they 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 should be able to focus on caring for patients, not worrying about security threats and violence. In the hospital. And it's so. not just at the front doors. Like we talked to security guards last fall who talked about, you know, in the initial stages when it's a person coming in or at the first door of the ER. But they could be in a hospital room throwing a punch at a nurse, throwing at a doctor. Like it's it's not just the people who are trained to deal with this who are trying to de- trying to cope with the violence. It's just everyday staff. Like an orderly could be coming down to try to clean, mop your floor and then suddenly someone turns on you, right? So. Well, you, you point out, Brett, it's stressful enough when you're there as a patient yeah. or visiting someone that you care about that is a patient. Can you imagine that's your work situation day in and day out, maybe looking over your shoulder, being concerned about what's going on? Yeah, I think the priority has to be, and we have to have a system and facilities that allow the individuals, the practitioners who care for us to worry about nothing else. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. There are some lessons in leadership that have emerged from New Zealand's tragedy. That country has shown compassion and strength. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern wasted no time in pushing for gun control, and she continues to grieve with her nation. Ardern spoke in Parliament yesterday, and she made a powerful pledge. An Australian citizen has been charged with one count of murder. Other charges will follow. He will face the full force of the law in New Zealand. The families of the fallen will have justice. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. And that is why you will never hear me mention his name. He is a terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. And to others, I implore you, speak the names of those who were lost rather than the name of the man who took them. He may have sought notoriety, but we in New Zealand will give him nothing, not even his name. Very succinct message from a leader who I see as beyond inspirational and um, she's been very real in this toughest of times for her country. 
Lauren. Do, do you think it's a name we need to know, though, for, as part of the conversation? Or is she right in saying, don't use it? You're giving him the, the fame he seeks. There's been a lot of people in the recent years, especially with all the mass shootings in the States, families that have come. I think they call it the no notoriety campaign. And they were pushing for everyone, media, you know, bloggers, whatever, to just not use the killer's names and speak more about the victims. But you have to there's a learning that has to be done, too. But we could we get away with just saying the guy who killed 50 people or the guy who killed 60 people in this city or whatever and continue to talk about the story without using the name? Or do we have to learn from it a little bit? Not sure. I don't like to use the name. I, I subscribe to the same philosophy as Prime Minister Ardern on this one. I don't like to give anybody publicity for lousy things that they've done in the past. I was watching an, an interview yesterday John Oliver did with Monica Lewinsky. And Monica Lewinsky's name was attached to that scandal. It wasn't the Bill Clinton scandal. Mm-hmm. It was attached to Monica Lewinsky. And she was the victim, really, and in, in to a great extent in everything that went down. And she carried that with her for an awfully long time. And so if, if we can reconsider how we talk about scandals on that front, which is what Monica Lewinsky was asking us to do, certainly we can have the discussion about not using this terrorist's name. That's a different argument, though, because the, you're talking about her being the victim and not using her name. And in this case, Correct. we're talking about using the victim's names yes. and not the perpetrator. Yeah, completely understood. Just, But if you can flip the mm-hmm. conversation and, and have a discussion about how we talk about these different things, uh, on one hand, I think we can certainly have the discussion on the other. You think it's important that we... I think, it's important. We, I think it's important we studied the person and understand what the motive was and what was behind the crime. I don't know. I don't know if we necessarily need to say the name. It's good to identify them. I do think that when they're found guilty and they've done something horrifically wrong and they aren't seeking that notoriety, there is there is the part of that system is naming them for the shame and that the idea that they also can't get away with it. Again, because that name will live on in infamy in a way of, okay, when I hear that name, say this person does get out of prison, I know that they had this past and I understand that. He's already playing games. So having that name is important. He's already playing games, fired his lawyer, now he's going to represent himself. Wow. I don't think we're talking about a... I understand, but come on. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we need your help. We need you to vote at WNLA.ca. What is that website? It's the Winnipeg Nightlife and Lifestyle Awards, the fourth annual, and the start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb has made the cut. We made it to the top five. We made it through the first round of voting, of public voting. We're in the top five for radio show of the year. The website again, WNLA.ca. The awards are at the Met on April 19th, Good Friday, and will be hosted by Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We would love to see you there. In a moment, we're going to talk more about naming the shooter in New Zealand. But before that... Federal budget today, Loren, lots going on in Ottawa. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things we mentioned earlier was the idea that the Liberals and the supposition that it would be used as a distraction to take people's attention away from the SNC-Lavalin affair and all the resignations from cabinet ministers and all the rest might be coming true, depending on where your eyeballs have landed this morning. But as we speak, there's still a committee that's meeting, uh, a justice committee that had Wilson-Raybould testify, that had the PM's former advisor testify. They're meeting behind closed doors as we speak. But we know the Liberals, who make up the majority of that committee, said last night and again this morning that they don't want to talk about 
SNC-Lavalin anymore. The public can decide that the debate's over, that they don't think anyone else needs to be testifying. And they put out a motion a few minutes ago saying what they do want to talk about, which is important, is hate crimes and uh, what more can be done on hate crimes. Again, I'm not taking away from that but the suggestion out of Ottawa is that the Liberals are sort of trying to steamroll this all through and just forget that this happened, move on. They've talked about it. It's over. This committee is assess- asserting, rather, that Canadians have enough information to make a decision for themselves right. as to what has happened here and that they don't need to visit this any longer in spite of the fact or despite the fact that Jody Wilson-Raybould had offered to come back and testify one more time in front of that committee Others had an opportunity to come back more than once. She did not. And uh, basically all all the appropriate members have signed off on this document saying, um, yeah, we're moving on. Moving on. So they won't Nothing talk about it anymore. Here. Nothing to see here. And then in the afternoon, we'll wait and see because it's behind closed doors. But people always come out of those meetings and they got lots to say. You can't stop people from talking once those doors open. And then, of course, in the afternoon, you have the federal budget coming down and uh, lots of suggestions. We're going to see more measures to help people buy houses and farmer care and all the rest. So busy day for folks there. Also, in terms of nothing to see here, nothing to see in the fall. Fog in many spots in southern Manitoba. We've had listeners call in and remind us that the fog is quite bad outside the city on Highway 206, for example, and to make sure, turn on your lights when you're driving in the fog to increase your visibility, not just for yourself, but for others who may be behind you or coming from the other way. If someone's behind you and you don't have your lights on, you can't see your taillights, they might not even know you're there. Mm. It's that It was that bad this morning that if you didn't have them on, that was, that was an accident waiting to happen or a crash waiting to happen. These automatic running daylights are one thing, but you have to actually make sure if you have automatic lights, it's on the right setting, mm-hmm. that they'll go on either all the time or when it's dark enough. And if it's not dark enough, then you've got to manually turn them on. And sometimes you're not certain, certain if you've got your headlights on and these running daylight or running day headlights are, are great, but we forget about making ourselves more seen. And so if we're reminding you to do that more often than maybe you feel we should, it's because a lot of people don't realize their taillights are not on on a day like today. There are some lessons in leadership that have emerged from New Zealand's tragedy. That country's Prime Minister has shown compassion and strength. Jacinda Ardern wasted no time in pushing for gun control. She continues to grieve with her nation. Here's Global's Robin Gill. If there was ever a moment a leader needed to step up, this was it. New Zealand's first female Prime Minister has managed to hold the wounded nation together. The clear lesson from history around the world is that to make our communities safer, the time to act is now. Jacinda Ardern's leadership became pronounced with a swift move to overhaul the country's gun laws. 72 hours after the mosque massacres, she pressured her cabinet to agree in principle to tighten the laws and sent a message to gun owners that they can surrender their firearms to police at any time. This ultimately means that within 10 days of this horrific act of terrorism, we will have announced reforms which will, I believe, make our community safer. The Prime Minister has been offering support to the community that suffered the most, the target of a murderer. Today, first responders broke their silence about the horror they saw as they raced to help those clinging to life. River of blood coming out of the mosque. And... um, That's a scene that you don't forget. The ages of the dead range from just three 
to 70. Some had barely settled in Christchurch, and others were visiting family who recently immigrated there. Paul Bennett was one of the first people on the scene, and he, like so many, are struggling to cope. We tried to get our stretcher into the mosque, but we couldn't because there were um, fatalities in the way. Um, we ended up having to um, um, lift the lift the bodies over top of other bodies. And the 28-year-old Australian suspect, Brenton Tarrant, who was charged with the 50 murders, fired his lawyer today. He now plans to represent himself. Prime Minister Ardern rose and spoke in Parliament yesterday, and she made a pledge we've been hearing this morning. An Australian citizen has been charged with one count of murder. Other charges will follow. He will face the full force of the law in New Zealand. The families of the fallen will have justice. He sought many things from his act of terror, but one was notoriety. And that is why you will never hear me mention his name. He is a terrorist. He is a criminal. He is an extremist. But he will, when I speak, be nameless. And to others, I implore you, speak the names of those who were lost rather than the name of the man who took them. He may have sought notoriety, but we in New Zealand will give him nothing, not even his name. So should we be saying the name of mass killers? That's the question we're asking this morning. Got an email at brett at cjob.com from Dennis, who says, totally agree, do not, not, not publish the names of murderers beyond the absolute minimum once the murderer is convicted. Every year, year after year, on the anniversary of the slaughter at Ecole Polytechnique, the murderer's name in full would be printed or mentioned on air. The name was literally burned in our memories. Yet can we, other than the continually suffering families and friends, recite any of the poor, defenseless young people who were massacred? Dennis. There's a couple arguments here, depending on where you're coming from, who shouldn't be saying the name? Are we talking about leaders? Are we talking about people, activists within the, within the community? Is, is it onus on the media to say it or not say it? Um, I'm reading a story now about how it reminded me in 2016 after the nightclub shooting in Orlando at the gay nightclub, Anderson Cooper came out and said, I don't think he was going to say the shooter's name. And then Correct. he got criticized for that in some ways because, you know, a journalist's job is to report the facts. And so that could be mentioned as, as a one line. It doesn't have to be mentioned hundreds of times. The fact is, here's the name, here's what he's charged with, move on or she. Um, and then on the other hand, you have studies or at least one that's shown uh, out of Arizona State University that when you report on mass ki- killings and you use names and you help glorify or, or push them to notoriety, does that spawn or spurn copycat events? And that's part of the other side of it, too. Are, are we are we glorifying it and allowing people to say, well, I don't care about my life. I wanted to do this anyway. I'm going to go out and do it. And then look at me. I'll be in the news. Well, in the context of a news report, I suppose it has to be in there at certain amount of times, at certain times in the process as we work our way towards a trial for this person who committed this crime or is, and, and you know, there's a, there's a video that was sent out there. The, the idea of having to use purported or alleged. accused or alleged it really bugs me. And I guess we can say that in the context of our conversation here when Jeff Braun is delivering the news at the top of the bottom of the hour. A little bit of a different story. Brett, you've been in both chairs 
And so it's a little bit different, is it not, in terms of how we discuss these things? Well, yeah, I think in in, in the context of being in Jeff's chair, when you're delivering the news, you're delivering the facts, and what are the basics, the five W's, who, what, where, when, why. And in that context, of course, we're going to deliver the name of the alleged shooter because that is one of the key facts of this story. And if we as a news organization start to omit certain facts based on editorial reasons, then then the, you could be accused from the other side of, well, now you're just choosing what what kind of facts you want to include. So who's to say you're not omitting other crucial facts? Right. Or and in it's what not case, about... where does it come? Who? Right. How, how big does the murder, how big does the tragedy have to be when you decide to use it or not use it? I think, I think there's a point to be made about using it sparingly or in specific circumstances. I'll listen to that argument, but I don't know about eliminating it altogether. But I do feel and would never want to be in the situation of family members to go through what they're going through and feeling like, look, yes, this guy's face is splashed all over the news or all over television. What about my three-year-old son? There was a three-year-old killed in that mosque attack. And I want to give How you his name. How many people know his name? I want to give you his name. His name is Muadi Ibrahim, the youngest of the victims. And you know, in the Islamic faith, that those that die are supposed to be, according to their faith, supposed to be cleaned, buried within 24 hours. So now you think about how many days we are removed from this tragedy, from this massacre, and none of these victims have been laid to rest yet. Uh, One more time, the perpetrator here has stolen part of an integral part of these people's faith. Not only has he stolen their life, he's also stolen what's very inherent, what's tied to their historical, to their religious beliefs. And, and I, I think it's, it's one more atrocity that the families of these victims and the victims themselves are, are having to suffer. member curling squad. Greg Mackling, what's going on here? Okay, four four people curl at a time, okay? That's how many people you should have in a curling team and one spare. Mm -hmm. Twelve people on a basketball team is like what an NBA team would use, right? The sixth man is the person that comes off the bench. The twelfth man in football are the fans in the NFL. The thirteenth man in the CFL. Not 37 people on a basketball team. However, you might want to listen to this because I know that my opinion on this changed from when I read the headline to when I listened to the story. The rosters for the junior sports teams at Michael Fair Junior High in Edmonton have no maximum limit of players, meaning students who want to play are all given the opportunity. That means almost half of the school's nearly 300 students are now on a sports team. On this junior high school basketball team, there are 37 players. It gets a little crowded at sometimes, but I get used to it. It's open to both boys and girls and players of all abilities. It's really fun because there's no stress on you. You just show up and play. While this school still has tryouts for its senior team, the junior team is a no-cut program. I tried out for the senior team, didn't make it, but like, still really fun trying out, but you know, the cuts are nervous. Rather than worrying about cutting, we just say uh, the more the merrier type mentality. The school's curling team has 14 players on a four-member rotation. We all take turns, so it's fun, and you just get to know everybody, and you get to know how they play. Since implementing the no-cut programs, the school has increased its sport participation rate from about 5 to more than 40%. 
Some of them are here because they want to maybe hone their craft for a senior team. Um, others are here because they just like to play. Some argue that being cut builds resiliency and coping skills, but that's not what Lorenz Sauls has found. She's been researching the impact of youth being cut from sports teams. I would argue that the skills that they get from participation in that entire sports season and future participation in sport outweighs that one opportunity to develop one skill of resiliency. Benefits include feeling connected to the school, higher attendance rates, and higher educational aspirations. Her research also found students who are cut from a certain sport are less likely to continue participating. That's not happening here. I tried out for both senior teams, but I didn't make it. But she still had an opportunity to play junior. Kim Smith, Global News. So this is junior high. This is not Major League Baseball. This is not the Canadian Football League. It's not even high school basketball. It's junior high. What do you think about this, McGarry? Well, in junior high at a Cole Region Park in Transcona on uh, Ravelston at Plessy's, I had something like this with our basketball program because we had a lot of guys who wanted to play ball and we had uh, enough players who were good enough to make the main team, but we had so many other people trying out that the school decided, you know what, let's have two teams. So I was on the second team. ER, there was ERP one, that was the elite team of our school, and then ERP two was the 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 doormat. But we played. There's another D word there, though. Development team. Yeah, let's go <laughs> with that. Farm team. <laughs> and uh, there were some pretty dark days because we were we were the sort of the scrubs, mm-hmm. and there was one game where we were down. 50 to 2, I think, at halftime. Ouch. And uh, it was bad. Yeah, but we, and we got beat up every night. We'd score maybe 10, 12 points. But we persevered through the season. And it was, I think it was a great learning experience for us because mm-hmm. it taught us to deal with adversity, like to go in and get your, your, your butt handed to you every game and still want to play. I think it was, spoke to our coach, it spoke to the program. And when we played ERP 1, <laughs> we were almost beating them at one point, And the coach was losing his mind. He's like, what are you doing losing to these idiots? Like, you use that word? I, he, something to that effect. <laughs> oh we were his students, but I, he was so mad. I think this is like, it depends on where you are and what age the kids are and all the rest. Like, I grew, I grew up in a small town, and so I made it to every single team. So I thought I was an athlete until I got out of Minnedosa was like, you are terrible at sports. Like, you can't do any of these, but you made all the teams, which was positive in other ways, like leadership and development and understanding just different games and how to get along. But that's not the same as being cut or being kept because on a team of 70. Like, there wasn't enough players to begin with. So Time I, made, and place. I, I made the teams because, right. you know, I don't know. They've got half the kids in this school participating in sport in junior high. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, agreed. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.